0: This is CNN Radio.
1: This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host Michael Shoulder. Our guest today says that when people know they're going to be meeting him, they expect Charles Manson. And this is his quote. They expect long greasy hair, driving a Harley, living in a dark cage in a house. They expect me to be scary, to have butcher knives hanging out of my lapels. We're going to try something new. We're not going to tell you who the guest is to start with. We're just going to have him begin with a sound check, which will involve him telling us a bit of his life story, his childhood. And if you're really impatient, you've got to find out his name. Fast forward exactly 10 minutes, you'll get it, but please wait. So, sir, tell us about your childhood.
0: Well, I was born with lapels hanging off my uh, daggers. <laughs> 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 um well, I was born in uh, the Midwest, a uh, working-class family. Father died when I was quite young, fell over at the factory dead. Uh, I think he was buried uh, the day after my sixth birthday. So I grew up in a kind of a poor house. My mother had to go to work and support three kids. Uh, raised in a—this will give me away. I was raised in a um, Baptist church that was very strict. So... Uh, we're not allowed to smoke, drink, play cards, dance, or go to movies. And uh, other than that, it was kind of a normal growing up in a the, in the fairly pleasant Midwestern city. And uh, nobody in my family had ever gone to college or anything. I was sort of the oddball that showed promise. So I, uh, my mother was able to put me through uh, four years of college at a good Midwestern college. And then I got a... a um, scholarship, a full scholarship to go to uh, a program at Johns Hopkins and I got a master's degree in philosophy and uh, writing and um, began teaching college just as a way to give myself a roof over my head while I uh, became the great American novelist, which never happened. And uh, in that short time I was teaching college, fell in love with movies and quit my job and went to New York and learned how to make movies. And the first uh, chance I got to make a movie, which was about a year later, Somebody said, we need a scary movie for our theater chain, and can you make it for $90,000? And myself and my partner said, sure, and we did, and uh, that became a sort of an infamous horror picture of the early 70s.
1: Well, and uh, before we introduce you then uh, for this CNN profile, let's just hear a, a little excerpt. I think it begins very quietly. your best. Hey, Nancy! No running in the hallway.
0: <laughs> yeah, this, well, it sounds like the scene from uh, *Nightmare on Elm Street* where Nancy, the protagonist, uh, dreams of her recently murdered girlfriend visiting her at the doorway of her classroom in a body bag, and. Uh, She follows her down into the basements and there meets Freddie and wakes up screaming when Freddie has her trapped and she puts her arm on a steam pipe and wakes herself up and then realizes she has a burn on her arm from the dream.
1: Okay, so I think by now, many of you know, we're speaking with uh, the director, Wes Craven. Wes, thank you for joining us on CNN Profiles.
0: Oh, I thought it was John Carpenter. I guessed wrong. (laughs) <laughs> no, we we'll, we we'll, we'll do him someday. But <laughs> Toby Hooper maybe. I thought maybe Toby.
1: <laughs> well, listen, uh well, first of all, I have a question for you. So so we before we get back into your movie career, I, I do want to rewind again to that strict Baptist upbringing because I am neither strict nor Baptist. So, I want you to give me a little more flavor and and of course that tragedy early in your life of your father just dropping dead. Uh which is horrible to think about, but tell me about what you learned as a child about what the world is like through that strict Baptist lens.
0: Well, you know, that, to to me, in retrospect, that whole business of being raised in a fundamentalist family and church, and there was very little division between family and church, actually. It was very much the whole social realm that i lived in. it did several things that were quite profound. One was it imbued in you the thought that you were not part of the world. You were just passing through. Uh, There was actually a little song that you sang. uh, The world is not my home, we're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So you literally referred to everybody else that was not part of your religion as the world. And then there were the people who were saved, who were going to heaven. And they were just passing through. You were just passing through, and your only job really was to try to bring as many people into the church and into the faith and to Jesus as you could. So there was a very big disconnect between your your life and everybody else's life around you in school, or anybody else you met that wasn't part of the church, and that was quite quite wrenching in a way. We we had to carry Bibles to school, and we were they encouraged to carry red Bibles that you know, actually had red le- leather covers and so if somebody would ask you why, why are you carrying a Bible and why is it read then you were you would say because the Bible should be read and then you had all these Bible v- verses that would, you would uh, you know, start spewing out to try to save their souls my problem with it was and, I, and this is only seen from the, in retrospective of, uh, of an adult's view is that I could never at my core believe it because I could not feel it so that brought me into another realm, which was those that reject the Holy Spirit. And that was preached to be the one unforgivable sin. So and one that only very, very few people committed, if if anybody if anybody in the church, probably only one. And then the, the pastor would kind of look around into all of our eyes. And I was always convinced that I was the one that just could not make it work because otherwise why wouldn't I be telling all my friends about how wonderful this was? And I wasn't feeling that it was wonderful. I was feeling uh, guilt and I was feeling frustration that I would pray and I would do all these things that I was told to do, but yet I could not truly, truly feel what they were telling me was real. Years later, decades later, you know, when I sort of moved away from the church and got into actually living in the world and being part of the rest of humanity, I can see that there's only one place to turn all of that guilt and that's towards yourself and to feel like you're some sort of monstrosity and you are doomed to hell. So that, you know, that is a heavy load to be on a kid. Um, so you know, it's it wasn't really until I was out of college, I think, that I started to uh, be part, because the college was a Christian college also and I had the same code of not going to movies and not not drinking, dancing, smoking, playing cards really until I went to graduate school that I started to experience the world and be taken in by people who were very sympathetic to where I had been. But uh, there was a lot of baggage that's left over from that. And uh, another thing that happened to me while I was a freshman in in this Christian college is that, now I don't talk a great deal about this in interviews, but I got German measles and as a result of that, while I was in the infirmary, got out of bed one night to uh, use the bathroom and just slid to the floor and my legs were just like spaghetti, wet spaghetti. And I was coming down with transverse myelitis, which is a in the family of polio. And overnight, virtually overnight, I was paralyzed from the chest down and spent three months in a hospital totally paralyzed with no feeling from the chest down. Um, at the peak moment that that was coming on, my parent my mother was called my big brother, who was kind of my father figure, was called from Cleveland where I grew up, and it was very clear to me that they were expecting that I might not make it through the night, and you know there was some deep well of something in me that said, "You know what? I'm not going to die, I'm going to get through this night and I fell asleep and I woke up in the morning, and my fever had broken, and the doctors were celebrating, and I was alive, I was paralyzed, but I was alive. And that sense that I don't have to believe what everybody else is thinking you know, sort of got me through the the ensuing years until I started to get a whole new concept of who I was and what the world was and what was really you know, what spirituality really meant to me in a way that was meaningful. And, you know, reached a position where I felt like, you know what, you can believe that God doesn't exist, but it's probably a failure of your own and those around you, imagination and imaginations. And that God, if there is a God, it is so spectacularly beyond us that you can't have somebody telling you who and what God is and, and have to believe it. It's just you find that spiritual place yourself. And there's a lot of wise people can kind of direct you towards it. But I think the wisest don't say, it is exactly this. It's different for all of us. And sometimes sometimes the holy trip, the path towards spirituality can lead through places you would never, ever guess. And for me, I think it led through horror films, believe it or not. And it's never been so much for me of digging out the, the dark, horrible thoughts that I'm having, everybody kind of says, Oh, you must have terrible thoughts. And it was dealing with the perception of evil outside of me in you know, I grew up in in World War II. I mean, I was born when Hitler Hitler invaded Poland and in my first five years of my life, I think with my father dying, he died in forty five when the war just ended, was war and people killing each other on a worldwide scale. So I think and I think with a lot of horror filmmakers, they are Quite gentle people and people with a lot of sense of humor, they're dealing with the terror of the world at large and at what lurks at the heart of humanity. And I think horror film directors react to that and make make films about fear and darkness that is in the human animal. Not entirely, it doesn't define all of humanity, but it is a part of us that the psyche must deal with. And I've said to students, you know, the body, the human brain still has nightmares after millions of years of getting rid of stuff that doesn't work for us. So there's something about nightmares that the psyche needs, and there's something about horror films and scary tales that go back through Odysseus and Greek tragedy, probably to the earliest dawn of humanity of dealing with the darkness that's in the deep, dark woods. And that's where... Freddy Krueger comes in or something like that. It is uh, it is giving a face to it so it can be dealt with in a narrative and I think narrative for many of us is a way of shaping the chaos, informing it with characters that represent both the darkness and the and the scary stuff and the noble and the part of humanity that can face these and conquer them,
1: so there. Wow, Is is the darkness of the deep dark woods that exists in your mind, more horrifying than than what is than what you put on the screen.
0: Well, you know, I put things on the screen in a very sort of primal way. So everything is kind of you know, because I, I have a, ma- a master's in philosophy. I, I always look at it like if you have like six teenagers in a movie and five are going to be killed, the way outsiders can look at horror, they say, "Why do why are you killing teenagers all the time?" I always say. You start with an uber character, an overall character that is your central character plus all of his or her friends. And then you eliminate the elements of that overall character that don't work in life. The kid that just thinks about sex and, and getting his girlfriend into bed. The kid that just wants to get stoned or just get blasted out of his mind on alcohol or that believes there's nothing out there to really worry about you get rid of those characters and you end up with a honed down heroic character that like Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street who believed because she experienced it that there was somebody called Freddy Krueger that was operating in dreams and that she could not sleep until she learned to deal with him and discover a way to get him on her turf, which she did. It's the person that sees the truth no matter how painful it is, no matter how many people are telling you you're crazy or you shouldn't think about that those are the people that actually break through and discover things that we can use in moments of darkness to keep the light shining in you know that's why i think beethoven was a tortured you know person and why poe was tortured and why when you write a horror film you have to go into a very dark place where you confront your worst fears and some of your worst imagination because i don't go into a story thinking I'm Mr. Purity. I just say I'm gonna go in and find whatever thought is in my mind of if I'm now playing the villain, what would I wanna do? How would I attack? How would I outsmart the weaklings that are trying to live good lives? And then I flip over to what would I do if I'm a person trying to live a good life and something terrible is coming after me? That's what the artist does. He becomes everybody.
1: Is that is that a good approach to life? I mean, you're, for example, you're a parent, I know, and a grandparent, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you know, clearly, we want to give our children a sense of security in the world. That's what that's what we're taught by by the people who know about childhood development. Give them a sense of security, and in a sense, what you're telling me is, well, first face your worst fears, and then figure out how to overcome them. That will make you a resilient person.
0: What? I think that's I think it's the only way to be as secure as you can be in the world. I think anybody that tells you you could be in the world and be totally secure doesn't read the newspaper. <laughs> you know. I mean, there are things that happen that are beyond all of our controls. We just had an asteroid go through past the Earth between our satellites and us down here on Earth. I mean, that was close. Yeah. Oh, don't, you
1: know? t- don't tell me the ending, please.
0: <laughs> it missed. But you know there are things that are way beyond our control. But I gave a TED talk a while ago and it was like, about fear, and I think, you know, you have to look at fear as something that can be positive, it can be a a warning, but it also can be punched through. If, If the first time you go skiing you can be scared, the first time you date a girl you can be scared, the first time you drive a car, the first time you go off to college, I mean there's all sorts of fears that we almost routinely overcome and then go through to a kind of a higher level of life and consciousness and experience. We're stronger, we're not afraid of that thing anymore, and we feel better about ourselves. And I think for some people, not everybody can go into a horror film and enjoy it, but I, I'll i tell you a typical experience I have like at a horror film convention, or actually this happened to me after I gave the TED Talk. A kid ran up to me on the street, this was in Chicago, said, "West Craven, You're my hero. I watched Nightmare on Elm Street when I was six years old. You gave me nightmares for three months. Thank you. And he pumped my hand with almost tears in his eyes and ran off. Now that to me is like, wow, that is so fascinating. There are some people that need to have those fears brought up because ultimately they know that Freddy Krueger doesn't exist. And they can kind of wear the mask almost in a way that helps them get through the true terrors of life, or the terrors that don't have names like Freddie that you can kind of deal with.
1: When you said that that, that phrase, the true terrors of life, uh, I mean, if you're just sort of living in an average, you know, get, having an average upbringing in, in an average American town, and uh, which is not visited by some horrific event, which some are, uh, what are the true terrors of life in your opinion?
0: Well, you know, I'll give you the granddaddy of them all, which is death. You know, you will, you will see death almost certainly. I mean, I was living in a nice little neighborhood in Cleveland. The guy next door was raking his leaves when, I, I don't know, I must have been three years old. And he just fell over dead. Um, my father died. You know, I watched an uncle die when I was in my teens. So I saw somebody killed on the street in Cleveland. Um,
1: so have you conquered the fear of death? And if so, tell us how.
0: You know, I don't think anybody totally conquers it. I'm I'm 73. I know I'm, you know, not that far from it myself. Um, I just kind of feel like the best way to look at it is I'm going to go back into the flow of life. That you know, life doesn't start someplace like when you're born or even when you first have a heartbeat. As a, it continues, it flows through humans, generation after generation. It's a continuous flow. And I think even when you die, your the particles, your your, your molecules, your things go back into the earth, they go back and defeat other creatures, and, and you continue on. Maybe not you with the name and all of that, but life continues and the wonder of it all continues. And I think if you can kind of subdue your ego to think, how, how can the world go on when I'm dead? Oh my gosh, how can that be? And just kind of lay back and say, you know what? It's all part of a beautiful long process. And. Uh, I hope I can peacefully close my eyes and uh, let it happen. So let's
1: talk about the more mundane fears and challenges that we all face now, careers. And so you went into this first horror movie. Uh, you got a break, and it was you and a buddy. And how, how many people in the budget, you said, was what, $90,000? Uh,
0: yeah, the total budget was $90,000. My buddy uh, was Sean Cunningham, who later dead Friday the 13th. Neither one of us ever intended to to make a career of doing horror films. Um, we made the film and we just decided to do it almost like a well, we we distanced ourselves from it somewhat just to say, let's do the most outrageous thing imaginable. Um, and we started off to do that, but the strange thing was that the story that I wrote was so strong that the actors actually came to me and convince me to mitigate certain elements of it and just play for the human drama of it.
1: Well, what, what, did, you got to tell me that this was which movie and what was too strong? Well, this
0: is uh, Last House on the Left.
1: And, and, and what what did the actors ask you to mitigate specifically that came out of your imagination?
0: Uh, some of the things, that, you know, like there's a, a two rape scenes, and if you've seen the movie, you would think, oh, my God, what could possibly be, you know, more intense? But, you know, you can you can show whatever you want, you know, if, when you're directing. It might be censured, but you can... Film whatever you want, but some things aren't needed. You know, the the you have to get at the human core of it. You have to get at the emotional core, but you don't have to get at the, necessarily the explicit core of it. So there were things like that that we're going to show more of the actual sexuality than uh, than we did, and it was you know clearly not necessary. And the, and the decision was made just on the spot all the way along making the movie. And there were a lot of things that were given by the actors who were, uh, most of them were not actors, but people involved in kind of the street life of New York. And they brought things to it that I couldn't have imagined. And some of, sometimes it was cruelty and sometimes it was tenderness. So, you know, I'd never made a film before, but they're very organic. And it's not something that just just comes from your own mind. It comes from kind of the confluence of your mind, and the actor's mind, and sometimes crew members, and sometimes weather, whatever it is. You know, all sorts of things will form it. But basically, it I think you follow your best instincts, and you do what, what will make a very powerful story. But that film did offend many people. And we, Sean and I, were virtually ostracized. I, I think myself, even more than Sean, because I was the guy who wrote it and directed it, and I had a lot of lot of friends who were, uh, you know, good PC um, academics still because I had come out of that world, who didn't want to be around me after that. Um, and Sean and I both tried for almost three years to to get other kinds of projects going. And the ironic thing was that the money people would only say, "If you want to make another scary movie, we'll do. You, we'll give you money to make a scary movie." So ultimately, when you're literally broke again. You say, "Okay, I'll do one more," <laughs> and uh, then I did the Hills of Eyes, uh, and then I started to get critical acclaim. And you, you go through this thing, you know, sort of the over the sort of residue of your old Christian fundamentalist background, saying you're doing horrible things and you're 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 you are evil, and then you start to have people thanking you for doing it, and it's you realize you're in a very complex matrix of Process and thought and creativity, something you never thought you would be in, but somehow that you have a gift in dealing with fear, causing fear, relieving fear. And at a certain point, I think about the time I wrote Nightmare on Elm Street, I said, this seems to be the gift that fate or God or whatever has given me. I have fans who thank me for it. And I can do anything I want within these films because there are almost no boundaries to what you can... Show. and I'm not talking about horrible things, I'm talking about you could do a movie about a guy who can only attack you in your dreams. And if you can convince the audience that that is dangerous, and I did that in the opening scene with the girl having a nightmare and Freddie just missing her with his claws and she wakes up and her nightgown is shredded, then you can talk about the whole philosophical thing of consciousness and it, because it's often equated with wakefulness. So the whole theme of Nightmare on Elm Street was based on the teaching of a mystic philosopher named Gurdjieff, who talked about there's two tendencies in humanity. One is to move towards wakefulness, but it's painful because it's towards truth. And the other tendency is to go towards sleep. And that can be alcohol, it can be sex, it can be you know a very safe business life. It can be lots of things. And this was a film about a character who saw something dark, actually attached to her parents and the parents of her friends' actions because they were the ones that killed Freddy Krueger when he was alive. She's the one that stays awake, literally stays awake, until she finds out how to fight him and defeat him. And you know what? That was based on a news story of almost that exact thing happening to a young kid from Southeast Asia whose family had come out of the war zones of Cambodia who became convinced He was having nightmares about a person that was gonna kill him and he kept himself awake for five days while his parents, his father, who was a doctor, was giving him sleeping pills. At the end of five days, he finally fell asleep. The family put him to bed thinking, thank God, this craziness is over. In the middle of the night, they heard screams. They ran into his bedroom and before they got to him, he was dead. Hmm. father found all of the sleeping pills. The kid had not taken sleeping pills. And the thing that broke my heart and made me think this is a movie they found a coffee pot in his closet they spotted an extension cord they didn't know what it was they followed it there was a Mr coffee maker in his closet with black coffee and it hot and it's just like oh my god
1: so so afraid of of the what's in the unconscious yes that, that yes. he had to stay awake
0: and there was an autopsy there was nothing wrong with his heart he simply died huh. now this there there are sort of uh, indigenous tribes where there is a tradition of having the shaman point a stick at you and you will die and things of that sort. So, you know, the human mind is extraordinarily powerful, but I think if if you can go into those places where terror exists and somehow have a character be able to go through it and come out the other side.
1: So it sounds to me like it's all come together for you. Even those last few minutes when you were talking, it's like I heard the transition between your Baptist upbringing, which is... Out of this world and then how you made that transition and there seemed to be a tipping point where you were fully in this world and it was the lack of money that almost forced you to immerse yourself fully in this world is is that correct
0: well yeah I mean I went to New York to get into the film business and I I didn't get in for two summers had to go back I taught a year of high school and then came back again and finally just started working uh, next to somebody get this a guy who was making industrials for IBM, was an older brother of one of my ex-students, and he said, I'll just show you what I'm doing, I can't pay you anything. Harry Chapin, who later went back and started writing music and became Harry Chapin, the folk singer. But he taught he taught me the basics, but I was broke, and I was married, my wife uh, and I and were lost our cars, we, we were in debt to the banks. So by the time I got my first job, I was flat broken owing oh, everybody. But I and I was, I hate to say it, but not hate to say it, but sadly the marriage ended. I was sleeping on couches. I I did everything that I hadn't done for the first uh, 30 years of my life. I, you know, I was experimented with drugs, experimented with you know communal living, all that sort of hippy dippy stuff. I did all of that so I just immersed myself in everything.
1: Did, did you have faith that you were gonna see the light at some point a, and a happy ending or or you just kept in motion long enough to for the gears to, to click in?
0: You know, last summer I did um, research on um, my family's se- sort of ancestry and I, I found out that my grandparents on my mother's side were uh, all coal miners. And on my father's side, they were all quarry workers in Vermont quarrying uh, granite. <laughs> and I, and I, I realized those are my roots. And I, I just, there's some part of me that just will keep going. I mean, I, I drove a taxi for a year in New York, you know, thinking I had just blown it, but I just kept trying. <laughs> and shortly after, got the chance to make uh, Last House on the Left. So I never thought anything beyond just making the next film or writing the next script and the, the fact that i've ended up where i am is it's so extraordinarily off the wall i can't believe it still you know i can't believe that I, I i've had a whole career of doing this and that now i'm like doing an interview like this i mean i just i thought i had gone so far off the tracks that i would never be heard of again and i'd just be making small little movies but that's not the way it It worked.
1: You know, I just read a uh, they had reported on a study that was done that showed a direct correlation between the kind of family narrative a child grows up with and the degree of resilience. And they said there are three types of family narratives. The family narrative where, hey, everything's always been great for us. It's just been, you know, smooth sailing the whole time. Then there's the family narrative where everything's been horrible for us. we have just, you know, a, a streak of bad fortune. And then there's the family narrative that you're telling me, which is, We've had a lot of ups and a lot of downs, but we'll get through it. And yeah. that family narrative produced by far the most resilient children. They found a direct correlation. And I guess that doesn't surprise you.
0: Interesting. Well, I think that maybe it was my mother. You know, she just somehow scraped it together. She had a ninth grade in education. She ended up running a, um, uh, you know, an, an auditing company. <laughs> uh, not not being paid for it. There were men who were getting the actual big pay, but uh, she was very, very smart mathematically, as it turned out, and she just figured out a way to not only raise three kids on, on a very small salary, something like 3,000 a year, I can remember her salary was, but put a son through college. You know, I worked all the way through college, but she certainly paid the, you know, the main part of that so
1: and somehow you came you came through all this and you talked about the role of humor even in horror films you came through it with a sense of humor how does that happen
0: you know i don't know i i, I can remember having a sense of humor the whole time i grew up i, I wrote a funny column in high school a high school paper i i wrote comedy in college and my friends were—I said—you have to—you you should just get out of here and, and do comedy, <laughs> you know. So uh, and then it just, of course, just disappeared for a while, when I started making horror films, and then it started reappearing in just uh, in in minor ways, but I think in in ways that kind of said to the audience, you know, um, it's okay, you know, behind this craziness there is a chance. To find the humor of it, and it, it, even if it's graveyard humor, if it, even if it's gallows humor, I can make you laugh too. And I, I think also being raised in a blue-collar family, like my father was, you know, in a factory. My brother was a telephone installation foreman. I really love those people. They they, they work with their hands and hearts, and I I, I think they can feel it. So. I think the audience knows that I'm on their side, and, and some filmmakers, I think the audience feels like you know, the, the filmmaker is not on my side. They just want to make me feel totally depressed, but I always feel like I'll do films that have families at their center, and almost all my films do, and I will show that there's no matter how crazy families are, there's a way to get through it and face things with your family. Even if it's with one last sibling or just yourself, you can represent yourself and your family and, and get through it. Now, that might not be always true in life, but I think in my, in the stories I tell, I give that to my audience, and, and they, get, in return, give a, an immense amount to me. They, the, my audience tells me I'm okay, and that there are not that many people that look at me and say, you know what, you're, you're great. Most people who know what I do for a living say, you must be crazy, <laughs> you know? So me and my audience, we, we make our way through.
1: So a, a final question for you, which which I've asked some of the sort of best and most insightful brightest people I know because uh, I've been trying to answer this since my daughter asked me the question when she was nine years old. And uh, you'll relate to this. She um, she was in an art class. And of course, in art classes, they put newspaper down on the table to protect the table. And the teacher hadn't really noticed that in one corner of the newspaper was a horrific story about a high school student going into his classroom in Finland and masquerading the whole class. And my nine-year-old daughter was sort of the only one in the class to notice this little bit of news. And she came home to me very deeply upset by it for a couple of days. And after trying to digest it, she asked me a question, which I'd like you to try to answer. She said, Dad, if the world were a movie, what would it be rated?
0: Wow. I think it would have all the letters in front of it. All the letters. Because it's not just dark and evil. There's so much human nobility and kindness and love. You can't, you know, you, I would never want to say this is the movies, the, the world's just like my movies. It's, you gotta say, you know, you're liable to encounter anything, but you'll always have my love and you'll always have your own strength. And somehow together, uh, you know, we'll, we'll muddle through. And if you believe in God, then, you know, God will help. But it's, you know, world, the world can be a fight and you have to be strong.
1: And it sounds like, in your opinion, don't necessarily take the shortcut to to the bright light get get through the dark part
0: well you you know if you could take a shortcut and get to the bright light and it's it's real that's great but uh and some people you know are blessed with a life that's just good and full of good family and they live in safety, and uh, you know things don't come unhinged in the, in the society they're in. I mean, you know, there are good periods of life where it's better, but uh, sometimes it's not so good for the people behind, you know, under the stairs, or people out in the fields, or whatever. So, you know, there's always all of these elements to the world. I mean, it's it. You can look around and find slavery today. You know, you can find people being uh, subjugated to terrible things, but you can also find people striving to bring beauty to the world and bring something good to the next generation so it's you have to look at it as a as a an entity a, a, a sphere you know it's not a flat plane.
1: Wes Craven thank you so much for joining us on CNN profiles.
0: Wow I feel like I'm naked here. <laughs> I'm gonna put my clothes back on now. <laughs> yeah oh too bad it's radio. <laughs> no it's fortunate. <laughs> thank you it was a good it was a good talk.
1: By the way, you can find CNN profiles on our website cnn.com/soundwaves or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud and please if you like what you hear, don't be shy, share.